In the year 1999, I would get up early every day, um, which is maybe strange to some of you. Uh, so I could go to school um, an extra 20 minutes before first period high school. I would walk up this same path um, that led to uh, these double doors that were for the administrative building. And right in front of that, those double doors was this flagpole. We had this flagpole that uh, was very big and grand and it had a California flag and an American flag. And um, I would stand there, a few people would trickle in to join me over time. Sometimes there'd be 10 of us, sometimes there'd be two of us, three of us. Uh, and we would stand there and we would pray. Right? We would stand in front of this flagpole, we would pray for the sinful nation of ours that it might turn to know God. Um, some of you might have heard of this thing called See You at the Pole, depending on how you might have grown up. But See You at the Pole was this designated day, um, I think it's in May or something like that, where people would gather around the country in front of their flagpoles to pray for the country. right? But to me, See You at the Pole was for the weak, um, for those of brittle and corrupt spirits. I showed up every day, every single day. In fact, on See You at the Pole Day, I slept in on accident and missed it. And I remember uh, going to school and crying bitterly during first period at this ironic joke that God had played on me. In the fall of that, 19, that year, 1999, there was a presidential election. And I remember um, we would gather at the pole. We would pray specifically for the victory of our godly man, George W. Bush, um, over the heathen Al Gore. Right. And this was like really important to me. This was of paramount importance. The soul of our country was at stake. And when someone would come into that little gathering and dare to request we pray for like their sick pet, I would look at them with these daggers shooting from my eyes for their selfish indulgence that they have displayed before what I saw to be a holy, holy altar. You fast forward uh, about seven years later. This is summer now of 2006. I'm in Anaheim, California, in the parking lot of Edison Field, which is um, a baseball stadium where my favorite team, the Angels, play. But I wasn't there for a game. I was there because every summer there would be this massive stadium tour around the country uh, called Harvest Crusade, um, where like you would go and there'd be like Christian skaters doing tricks, and uh, I remember Switchfoot would play, and um, and this guy, Pastor Greg Laurie, would get up and he would give this sermon often that. He would talk about this God-shaped hole in, in all of our hearts. And at the end, he would invite people to come down to the field and accept Jesus. Um, in my mind, that was the sort of paragon of, of right-wing Christian culture. So in that parking lot, 2006, a friend of mine and I stood. Um, we were kind of nervous and scared. We, we had this, these poles, and these two poles, and we walked and unfurled this massive banner that we had painted. And on it, I, I think it was an American flag that we had painted in, in big words, religious-left.org. It's a website that we had started to counteract the Christian right in this country. And people would walk by, they'd be curious, some would be angry. I remember specifically this one dude in, in like military garb kind of yelling at us. Um, we were really trying to change uh, the hearts and minds of people, the kinds of people who would stand in front of a flagpole and pray for George W. Bush to become president. 
We're at part three now of this manifesto that we're doing at Root and Branch, a sort of six-part series of talks that's, uh, you could, you know, despite all the fancy words, we just think of it to mean something like, what, what are we about as a church? What is this church about? A month ago, we talked about community. Two weeks ago, Neil uh, talked about personal transformation. Um, and this week, we've come to the third topic, this grand uh, topic called social slash world transformation, um, which, you know, honestly, when I first saw that, it made me nervous and um, scared about what that meant, right? Maybe we can bring this topic down to earth a little bit and think of it more as something like, what is Root and Branch trying to do to change this world? Um, but before we get to that particular question, let me ask this more general one, which is, what do we think that the Christian faith asks people to do in this world? What do we think that the Christian faith wants people to do in this world? As uh, my two little stories in the beginning um, demonstrate, for much of my formative years in my life, I, think, I also think in our national kind of consciousness, this question has something to do with politics all the time, that uh, the Christian faith asks its followers to influence the political system, its discourse, its leaders, its laws, to adhere to Christian morals and values, right? Whether it's praying for George W. Bush to be nominated or to be elected so he can nominate a Supreme Court justice that would overturn Roe v. Wade or starting a website for people to support candidates who support Roe v. Wade. Um, there is this narrative that Christians are to uh, use politics in this world to advance its cause. But honestly, you know, that's a very modern and, and recent kind of way of looking at it, right? But this is, this is by no means even the predominant one in the history of Christianity in 2,000 years. After all, you know, we forget that this is a religion um, that's born in the shadow of imperial power whose central figure was executed by the government. And so it makes sense that Christianity would have a very complicated and strange relationship to the state and to politics. My own experience exemplifies, I think, this complication, right? From, again, this flagpole to stadium to, uh, I remember an argument I had you know, maybe like six years ago with a very incredulous friend of mine when I said very uh, righteously that I thought that Christians shouldn't vote or join the military, two stances that uh, I've changed a lot on. But uh, to then I worked for a nonprofit that was trying to advocate to you know, organize churches, to use their faith, to vote for certain people in Chicago and in Illinois. And while I was working for that nonprofit, I also started a blog for them. And in that blog, I uh, kind of subtly, subversively um, would write about how I thought religion didn't actually have much to do with people's political values, that things like race and economics um, were more important. And so you see that in my own journey, like this weird complication that is trying to figure out uh, how this all fits into this grand uh, picture of power. I have, you know, ultimately no real rock solid answer for you about how the relationship between religious belief and politics ought to look, except to say that I have little doubt in my mind, and this has even been made more true after this um, insane first year of Trump's presidency we had, that the kingdom of God, the direction of heaven, which is what we sort of have called that in our welcome table liturgy. Um, the new order of things uh, 
that is made good in love and faith and in hope does not find its fulfillment in the democratic experiment that is America or just as it hasn't in any other political system we've seen in the past. The Christ, the, the, I see the claim of social and world transformation in Christianity is that the kingdom of this world are not ultimate because the kingdoms of this world are always about power over. Right? And no matter which political party you support, no matter who our next president might be, this arena of power over is a broken one. Um, it's a fallen one, it's a sinful one, if we can use that language here. And one might look at that and be cynical about it, but I actually think that our call here is not to cynicism. It's also not a call to be isolationist and retreat into our own selves. Right? It's actually a call, strangely, to idealism. Right? Ideals that proclaim things like nationalism is an idol, that borders um, are kingdoms of men, made by men, that our neighbor doesn't need to show us papers for them to be our neighbor, that fear of the other is often a construct um, that we're all siblings together, worthy of love, right? You hear these things so much, they become uh, almost passed through our brain, but love thy neighbor, turn the other cheek. If someone asks you for your coat, give them your house, right? All the difficult, annoying things that Jesus said um, that we like to dismiss sometimes. The direction of heaven is all of those things. It's big and it's wide enough for all people, regardless of where they come from or who their parents are or what they do in the world. And that is an idea that maybe seems just like, okay, you know, that's true. But in the history of things, that is a radical, radical idea. And radical today, I think, is still the idea that this kingdom, this uh, new order that God is trying to bring is big and wide enough to love regardless of who we might love in our lives, what gender we might claim, um, what color our faces might be, what our abilities are, what country we're born in, right? This thing is bigger than any republic, um, any country, any economic system. It's actually, it's bigger than any, uh, the imagination I had when I was 14 or when I was 21, or even now as I list all these things that I think that it includes, I, I have to understand that my imagination also isn't big enough to include all of it. It's the beginning of Lent, like I said, um, and we often give up something during Lent. I actually sort of forgot to do that. Um, it's never too late for you though. If you want to do that, please do. And we're often, you know, this idea of sacrifice something, like where does that come from? Well, part of it is from this passage we heard today in which the giving up of something is part of this test that Jesus has to go through, right? The devil appears, offers three temptations. Um, and for our, our purposes today, social world change, let's look a bit at the second one. Uh, let me read it for you again. Then the devil led him up 
and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. This test and Jesus' answer to it, I think, tells us something important about what he thought he was supposed to do in this world, right? Notably, that it wasn't on his agenda to go forth and gain political power, the kind that would make him uh, a ruler. If that was his ultimate aim, the story tells us he would actually be serving the devil and not God. But I think it would be a mistake I, you know, to take that to mean that Jesus' intention was apolitical or unconcerned with the way that such power can so intimately and radically affect our lives. You know, I'm going to fast forward a little bit in this image, but rather like Jesus is parading down into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which we'll see in a couple weeks, um, on this donkey, right, looking like sort of a sad wannabe ruler. The subversion of the power over dynamic, right, is not about getting the right person to have power over, but is to actually reinterpret what power ought to look like, right? It's no longer a king, a majestic king, but a sad dude on a donkey, right? This kind of breaking open what we think power looks like in this world. Over the last four and a half years, that's you know, about as long as we've been around in existence, um, I, I, I've heard, I, I think we've faced our fair share of critiques and criticisms from people, right? Um, we've talked about this Yelp person a lot, but uh, <laughs> you know, we've been called false prophets and heretics, right? Um, hipster church that's trying to be so cool. Um, too Christian, not Christian enough, right? Like all these things have been levied against us. People are going to hate, and that's fine with me, and I don't take much stock in some of those things. But there is one critique that I do think uh, is worth considering. And it's not one I've actually heard a ton from other people, but maybe it's one that I've felt for myself, which is, um, you know, in our quest as a community, to be a place where we um, are trying to re-understand Christianity in a world that is foreign for it, um, we often can be very navel-gazy as we do that, right? Uh, Sometimes the the stories and conversations we share with each other, right, when we have this kind of conversation discourse, which is the backbone of what we do, I wonder if we sometimes forget that our stories are also other people's stories. And that in the pursuit of trying to build a different kind of church in this world, we fixed our gaze inward in in a way that has stunted our our mission to make this world around us better in whatever way we can do that. So much of what we try to preach here, and this is like so vital to uh, my understanding of God and communal love and all of that is that you, right, you, 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 me, um, you are good, right? You are worthy of love. You deserve it. Um, And in this communal pursuit of that, of understanding that, of breathing that, of letting that change us, 
we might have forgotten sometimes to speak the second part of that phrase, which is just as important, which is something like, now go out and love other people. You are good and worthy of love. Now go out and love other people. There's always more that the church can do, we can do um, in this world. Kevin, actually, before service was talking about being curious about that in some ways. And um, we are trying, and I hope that you'll see that in the coming months, but I also hope that you'll hold us accountable to that and um, participate in a a way that is uh, not just top-down, but from all of us. At the same time, I'm also proud of the things that we have done, right? Which is supply a rare place for conversation and, and, and mourning and grieving and praying and self-reflection um, in the face of a lot of things that have happened over the last four and a half years, right? In, in sermons and in marches we've done and vigils we've held um, around police brutality and racism and gun violence and LGBT issues and this current administration and all that it represents. Um, I don't believe that every church is called to the exact same mission. Uh, Ours may not look like St. Sabina's, which is, if you don't know, a radical black Catholic church on the south side that's always up in the front of the marching line. just as our mission doesn't look like you know, Willow Creek or whatever other church that we might all know. I was trying to think of like, what churches might people know? And I was like, I don't know, <laughs> I had no idea. But whatever other churches we know, right, we, our missions are not always the same. What we do share though, is a call to transform this world around us, right? To create community, beloved community, capital C and small C with the resources we do have, right? And in doing this, to reinterpret the power over structure of this world into a power for, a power together structure. I see the change that Root and Branch can bring into this world as defined by this beautiful description um, of the church that I read from this Anglican pastor, uh, Tish Harrison Warren, who talks about the church as a body of forgiven people. She writes, church is not a place where we go to profess our virtue, but one where we go to confess our lack of it. I think this is a a radically uh, strange idea in in our broader culture where, um, as theologian Martin Marty puts it, everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. It's it's a crazy uh, idea that the hierarchy of things needs to change that uh, we can be a place that flips the idea of dominance and strength on its head. Transforming the world to me means being extremely idealistic about bringing people into the foundation of relationship or community, right? A foundation of authenticity that needs love, grace, and forgiveness. We're by no means perfect at this. Uh, We've got a long way to go at all times. We wouldn't be here if that wasn't true, but even while we're a work in progress, we can offer this to the world, right? Even while we're still learning ourselves how to do it well, we can offer it to the world. Even when it's scary and rejection is part of it, 
we can still offer it to the world. While I believe, you know, that our ideals ask us to support um, a myriad, a lot of policy changes to enact justice in this world, and in particular, I've been thinking a lot about gun control, of course, which is um, something that is unfortunately feels like we've, we've just seen too much of this shit, right? And my brother's a high school teacher. Uh, I texted him the other day and he sort of had this unnerving fatalism about it happening in his school, which was like, now my brother's a little weird guy, so don't take that too seriously, but it's, it's insane for us to think that that's where things lie. Um, I encourage you to uh, think about what you can do to advocate for this. I think it's important. I was, uh, if you, I don't know if you've seen that there's, they're trying to organize a sort of uh, rally or walkout of high schools in, on, in April. And I saw that and I was like, oh, I should share this on my social media. And I realized I don't actually know any teenagers anymore. So, but if you do, maybe you can share that. But the point is, is that even while I support um, with a really heavy and um, broken heart that some of these policy things need to change. Ultimately, the kingdoms of men um, are things that rise and fall. And the most enduring transformation is the one that we can offer, that you can offer to someone like me. Right? Someone like me when I was um, 14, someone like me when I was 21, someone like me now. The reason I believe that Jesus rejected the authority to rule is not because creating fair and just institutions is a bad thing. No, not at all. But Christians claim, Christianity's claim is that a better world necessitates our own transformation, which also creates a collective transformation. No kingdom on this earth has the power to make things right by military or economic coercion or by the rule of law. I read this recently in, in an essay, which I thought was really good to the point. It was talking a lot about um, things happening in our culture, particularly around sexual harassment. Um, it says, we should never be so naive as to think that our institutions will ever be less racist or sexist or materialistic, more equitable or loving or fair than we are. I wish that I could talk to my younger self sometimes. Um, as I get older, that self feels more and more like a dream. Um, but I can remember that um, for me, praying every morning was as much about finding identity for myself as it was about religious jealousy and passion, right? Um, that someone's prayer for a sick dog or a parent that lost a job or a test they had coming up that day that that, that only got in the way, uh, for me, um, is indicative of this idea that what I was pursuing at that time was really about um, a kind of power over, right? A kind of uh, a kid wanting to make a difference in this world with some power behind them. When I found a different identity, a couple years later, I was elected into student body, and uh, suddenly I was part of this, like, enviable cool club and I had things to do. I didn't show up at that poll that often. 
standing many years later in that baseball stadium parking lot, that person there who thought that they were so much wiser and um, smarter than they were when they were younger, right? That person was actually a very lost person, right? And someone who had lost faith in all the people and mentors and communities and support groups that they had in their life. I felt uh, a lot of shame for the things I advocated for before, right? And really, besides my friend who was holding that pole with me that day, um, had no one really to talk to about that sort of stuff. That sort of stuff. Communities like this one were truly unimaginable to me. To transform the world around us, uh, like I said in the beginning, is this major big thing, right? And I think it includes work we must do to shout and march and vote together. But our most unique task is to offer something that may not otherwise be there if it wasn't for you, for each individual you, me, that we have, right? Which is to offer an invitation to a different way of being in this world. If they don't hear it from you or me, they may never hear it at all. And I don't necessarily mean an invitation into Root and Branch, right? But I hope that if this is a place that you have found some good news for yourself, you will want to share it with others. But really, again, it's an invitation from you to be in relationship with you, one in which you are idealistic about how you might love somebody, and forgive somebody, um, your friend, your family, strangers, how you might bring them all into this fellowship of forgiven people. Not that they would come to ascend to some um, set of propositions or beliefs, right? But that they would come to know that they are good and worthy of love, and in turn, they would love others. Despite the sort of cheesy and <laughs> embarrassing, um, I feel a little embarrassed saying something like that, you know. Given the history of this world again, this is actually perhaps the most unique, um, radical, and revolutionary idea that there is. It's a, an idea big enough to change our society, change our world. Amen. <laughs>